Story Six of The Water Ghost and Others by John Kendrick Bangs. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Story Six: The Ghost Club, Part Two. These rooms were in a beautiful house on Fifth Avenue. The number of the house you will find on consulting the court records. I have forgotten it. It was a large, broad, brownstone structure, and must have been over one hundred and fifty feet in depth. Such fittings I never saw before. Everything was in the height of luxury, and I am quite certain that among beings to whom money is a measure of possibility, no such magnificence is attainable. The paintings on the walls were by the most famous artists of our own and other days. The rugs on the superbly polished floors were worth fortunes, not only for their exquisite beauty, but also for their extreme rarity. In keeping with these were the furniture and bric-a-brac. In short, my dear sir, I had never dreamed of anything so dazzlingly, so superbly magnificent as that apartment into which I was ushered by the ghost of my quondam friend, Holly Hicks. At first I was speechless with wonder, which seemed to amuse Hicks very much. "'Pretty fine, eh?' he said, with a short laugh. "'Well,' I replied in a moment, "'considering that you can get along without money, and that all the resources of the world are at your disposal, it is not more than half bad. Have you a library?' Oh, "'I was always fond of books,' explained Fifty Ten in parentheses to me, and so was quite anxious to see what the Club of Ghosts could show in the way of literary treasures. Imagine my surprise when Hawley informed me that the club had no collection of the sort to appeal to the bibliophile. No, he answered, we have no library. Rather strange, I said, that a club to which men like Shakespeare, Milton, Edgar Allan Poe, and other deceased literati belong should be deficient in that respect. Not at all, said he. Why should we want books when we have the men themselves to tell their tales to us? Would you give a rap to possess a set of Shakespeare if William himself would sit down and rattle off the whole business to you any time you chose to ask him to do it? Would you follow Scott's printed narratives through their devious and tedious periods if Sir Walter in spirit would come to you on demand and tell you all the old stories over again in a tenth part of the time it would take you to read the introduction to one of them? I fancy not, I said are you in such luck i am said hawley only personally i never send for scott or shakespeare i prefer something lighter than either douglas gerald or marryat but best of all i like to sit down and hear noah swap animal stories with davy crockett noah's the brightest man of his age in the club adam's kind of slow how about Solomon? I asked, more to be flippant than with any desire for information. I was much amused to hear Holly speak of these great spirits as if he and they were chums of long standing. Solomon has resigned from the club, he said, with a sad sigh. He was a good fellow, Solomon was, but he thought he knew it all until old Dr. Johnson got hold of him, and then he knuckled under. It's rather rough for a man to get firmly established in his belief that he is the wisest creature going, and then, after a couple of thousand years, have an Englishman come along and tell him things he never knew before, 
especially the way Sam Johnson delivers himself of his opinions. Johnson never cared whom he hurt, you know, and when he got after Solomon he did it with all his might. I wonder if Boswell was there, I ventured, interrupting 5010 in his extraordinary narrative for an instant. Yes, he was there, returned the prisoner. I met him later in the evening. But he isn't the spook he might be. He never had much spirit anyhow, and when he died he had to leave his nose behind him, and that settled him. Of course, I answered, Boswell, with no nose to stick into other people's affairs, would have been like Othello with Desdemona left out. But go on. What did you do next? Well, 5010 resumed, after I'd looked about me and drunk my fill of the magnificence on every hand, Howley took me into the music-room and introduced me to Mozart and Wagner and a few other great composers. In response to my request, Wagner played an impromptu version of Daisy Bell on the organ. It was great. Not much like Daisy Bell, of course, more like a collision between a cyclone and a simoom in a tin-plate mining camp, in fact, but nevertheless marvellous. I tried to remember it afterwards, and jotted down a few notes, but I found the first bar took up seven sheets of fool's cap, and so gave it up. Then Mozart tried his hand on a banjo for my amusement. Mendelssohn sang a half-dozen of his songs without words, and then Gottschalk played one of Poe's weird stories on the piano. Then Carlyle came in, and Hawley introduced me to him. He was a gruff old gentleman, and seemingly anxious to have Froude become ineligible, and I judged from the rather fierce manner in which he handled the club he had in his hand that there were one or two other men of prominence still living he was anxious to meet. Dickens, too, was desirous of a two-minute interview with certain of his, at present, purely mortal critics, and, between you and me, if the wink that Bacon gave Shakespeare when I spoke of Ignatius Donnelly meant anything, the famous cryptogrammarian will do well to drink a bottle of the elixir of life every morning before breakfast and stave off dissolution as long as he can. There's no getting around the fact, sir. Sorens added, with a significant shake of the head, that the present leaders of literary thought, with critical tendencies, are going to have the hardest kind of a time when they cross the river and apply for admission to the ghost club. I don't ask for any better fun than that of watching from a safe distance the initiation ceremonies of the next dozen who go over and as an englishman sir who thoroughly believes in and admires lord wolsey if i were out of jail and able to do it i'd write him a letter and warn him that he would better revise his estimates of certain famous soldiers no longer living if he desires to find rest in that mysterious other world whither he must eventually betake himself They've got their swords sharpened for him, and he'll discover an instance when he gets over there in which the sword is mightier than the pen. After that, Hawley took me upstairs and introduced me to the spirit of Napoleon Bonaparte, with whom I passed about twenty-five minutes talking over his victories and defeats. He told me he never could understand how a man like Wellington came to defeat him at Waterloo, and added that he had sounded the Iron Duke on the subject and found him equally ignorant. So the afternoon and evening passed, 
I met quite a number of famous ladies, Catherine, Marie Louise, Josephine, Queen Elizabeth, and others, talked architecture with Queen Anne, and was surprised to learn that she never saw a Queen Anne cottage. I took Peg Waffington down to supper, and altogether had a fine time of it. But, my dear Serenz, I put in at this point, I fail to see what this has to do with your defense in your trial for stealing spoons. Well, I'm coming to that, said Fifty Ten sadly. I dwell on the moments passed at the club because they were the happiest of my life, and am loath to speak of what followed, but I suppose I must. It was all due to Queen Isabella that I got into trouble. Peg Woffington presented me to Queen Isabella in the supper-room, and while Her Majesty and I were talking, I spoke of how beautiful everything in the club was, and admired especially a half-dozen old Spanish spoons upon the sideboard. When I had done this, the Queen called to Ferdinand, who was chatting with Columbus on the other side of the room, to come to her, which he did with alacrity. I was presented to the King, and then my troubles began. "'Mr. Serenz admires our spoons, Ferdinand,' said the Queen. The King smiled, and turning to me observed, "'Sir, they are yours. Uh, waiter, just do these spoons up and give them to Mr. Serenz.' "'Of course,' said Fifty Ten, "'I protested against this, whereupon the King looked displeased. "'It is a rule of our club, sir, as well as an old Spanish custom, "'for us to present to our guests anything that they may happen openly to admire. "'You are surely sufficiently well acquainted with the etiquette of club life "'to know that guests may not with propriety decline to be governed by the regulations of the club,' whose hospitality they are enjoying. "'I certainly am aware of that, my dear King,' I replied, "'and, of course, I accept the spoons with exceeding deep gratitude. My remonstrance was prompted solely by my desire to explain to you that I was unaware of any such regulation, and to assure you that when I ventured to inform your good wife that the spoons had excited my sincerest admiration, I was not hinting that it would please me greatly to be accounted their possessor. "'Your courtly speech, sir,' returned the King, with a low bow, "'is ample assurance of your sincerity, and I beg that you will put the spoons in your pocket and say no more. They are yours. Verb, sap.' I thanked the great Spaniard, and said no more, pocketing the spoons with no little exultation because, having always been a lover of the quaint and beautiful, I was glad to possess such treasures, though I must confess to some misgivings as to the possibility of their being unreal. Shortly after this episode, I looked at my watch and discovered that it was getting well on towards eleven o'clock, and I sought out Hawley for the purpose of thanking him for a delightful evening and of taking my leave. I met him in the hall talking to Euripides on the subject of the amateur stage in the United States. What they said I did not stop to hear, but offering my hand to Hawley informed him of my intention to depart. "'Well, old chap,' he said affectionately, "'I'm glad you came. It's always a pleasure to see you, and I hope we may meet again some time soon.' And then, catching sight of my bundle, he asked, "'What have you there?' I informed him of the episode in the supper-room, and fancied I perceived a look of annoyance on his countenance. "'I didn't want to take them, Hawley,' I said, but Ferdinand insisted. 
"'Oh, it's all right,' returned Hawley. "'Only I'm sorry. You'd better get along home with them as quickly as you can, and say nothing, and above all, don't try to sell them.' "'But why?' I asked. "'I'd much prefer to leave them here if there's any question of the propriety of my—' Here continued fifty-ten, Hawley seemed to grow impatient, for he stamped his foot angrily, and bade me go at once, or there might be trouble. I proceeded to obey him, and left the house instanter, slamming the door somewhat angrily behind me. Hawley's unceremonious way of speeding his parting guest did not seem to me to be exactly what I had a right to expect at the time. I see now what his object was, and acquit him of any intention to be rude, though I must say if I ever catch him again I'll wring an explanation from him for having introduced me into such bad company. As I walked down the steps, said Fifty Ten, the chimes of the neighboring church were clanging out the hour of eleven. I stopped on the last step to look for a possible hansom cab when a portly gentleman accompanied by a lady started to mount the stoop. The man eyed me narrowly for a moment, and then, sending the lady up the steps, he turned to me and said, "'What are you doing here?' "'I've just left the club,' I answered. "'It's all right. I was Holly Hicks' guest. Whose ghost are you?' "'What the deuce are you talking about?' he asked, rather gruffly, much to my surprise and discomfort. I tried to give you a civil answer to your question, I returned indignantly. I guess you're crazy, or a thief, he rejoined. See here, friend, I put in rather impressively, just remember one thing. You are talking to a gentleman, and I don't take remarks of that sort from anybody, spook or otherwise. I don't care if you are the ghost of the Emperor Nero. If you give me any more of your impudence, I'll dissipate you to the four quarters of the universe, see?" Then he grabbed me and shouted for the police, and I was painfully surprised to find that instead of coping with a mysterious being from another world, I had two hundred and ten pounds of flesh and blood to handle. The populace began to gather the million and a half of small boys of whom I have already spoken, mostly street gamins, owing to the lateness of the hour, sprang up from all about us. Handsome cab-drivers, attracted by the noise of our altercation, drew up to the sidewalk to watch developments, and then, after the usual fifteen or twenty minutes, the blue-coat emissary of justice appeared. "'What's this?' he asked. I have detected this man leaving my house in a suspicious manner," said my adversary. I have reason to suspect him of thieving. "'Your house!' I ejaculated with fine scorn. "'I've got you there. This is the house of the New York branch of the Ghost Club. If you want it proved,' I added, turning to the policeman, "'ring the bell and ask.' "'I think that's a fair proposition,' observed the policeman. "'Is the motion seconded? "'Oh, come now,' cried my captor, "'stop this nonsense, or I'll report you to the department. This is my house, and has been for twenty years. I want this man searched.' "'I have no warrant permitting me to investigate the contents of the gentleman's clothes,' returned the intelligent member of the force. "'But have yous take your solemn alibi that yous hove brazen to believe the gentleman has worked any habeas corpus business on your property, all jogged a blaggard.' 
I'll be responsible, said the alleged owner of the house. Take him to the station. I refuse to move, I said. Oil not carry us, said the policeman, and I'd advise you to furnish your own locomotion. If you don't, I'll use me club. That's the only way you'll get the ambulance. Oh, well, if you insist, I replied, of course I'll go. I have nothing to fear. You see, added 5010 to me in parenthesis, the thought suddenly flashed across my mind that if all was as my captor said, if the house was really his and not the ghost clubs, and if the whole thing was only my fancy, the spoons themselves would turn out to be entirely fanciful. So I was all right, or at least I thought I was. So we trotted along to the police station. On the way I told the policeman the whole story, which impressed him so that he crossed himself a half-dozen times and uttered numerous ejaculatory prayers. "'May the saints preserve us!' and "'Heaven, hoy, mercy!' and others of a like import. "'Was the ghost of Dan O'Connell there?' he asked. "'Yes,' I replied. "'I shook hands with it. "'Let me shake that hand,' he said, his voice trembling with emotion, and then he whispered in my ear, "'I believe yous to be innocent, but if yous ain't for the love of Dan, I'll let yous escape.' "'Thanks, old fellow,' I replied, "'but I am innocent of wrongdoing, as I can prove.' "'Alas!' sighed the convict. "'It was not to be so.' When I arrived at the station-house, I was dumbfounded to learn that the spoons were all too real. I told my story to the sergeant, and pointed to the monogram, G.C., on the spoons, as evidence that my story was correct. But even that told against me, for the alleged owner's initials were G.C., his name I withhold, and the monogram only served to substantiate his claim to the spoons. Worst of all, he claimed that he had been robbed on several occasions before this, and by midnight I found myself locked up in a dirty cell to await trial. I got a lawyer, and, as I said before, even he declined to believe my story, and suggested the insanity dodge. Of course I wouldn't agree to that. I tried to get him to subpoena Ferdinand and Isabella and Euripides and Holly Hicks in my behalf, and all he'd do was sit there and shake his head at me. Then I suggested going up to the Metropolitan Opera House some fearful night, as the clock struck twelve, and try to serve papers on Wagner's spook, all of which he treated as unworthy of a moment's consideration. Then I was tried, convicted, and sentenced to live in this beastly hole but I have one strong hope to buoy me up, and if that is realized I'll be free to-morrow morning. What is that? I asked. Why, he answered with a sigh as the bell rang, summoning him to his dinner, why the whole horrid business had been so weird and uncanny that I'm beginning to believe it's all a dream. If it is, why, I'll wake up and find myself at home in bed. That's all. I've clung to that hope for nearly a year now, but it's getting weaker every minute. Yes, 5010, I answered, rising and shaking him by the hand in parting. That's a mighty forlorn hope, because I'm pretty wide awake myself at this moment, and can't be a part of your dream. The great pity is you didn't try the insanity dodge. Tut, he answered, that is the last resource of a weak mind. End of Story 6, Part 2